Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for listening. Robert, Zach, we made it to episode 10, if you can believe it. Um, hey, awesome. Episode 10 tonight. Yeah. Um, nice. So if... I remember correctly from uh, last uh, last episode, uh, this week we're diving kind of into the Old Testament and kind of talking about the Old Testament, the laws, the lore, kind of doing a, a whole segment um, on the Old Testament. And uh, Zach, I believe you were uh, going to kind of start us off with that. So, uh, so okay. let's, uh, let's kick it in. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So one thing that, you know, I always like to preference when I talk about the Old Testament, um, there's like, I came across a number of like, I guess you could say maybe misunderstandings um, regarding the Old Testament. Probably one of them that I'd just like to address really quick is uh, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, does not claim to be the oldest book out there. Um, I actually ran across a guy who argued you know, because the Epic of Gilgamesh was older, therefore, you know, like, you know, there's basically like there's stuff that's out there that's older than the Bible. Therefore, you know, the Bible isn't the oldest thing out there. And, and, and kind of used that as a means of like, sort of like refutation, I guess. I mean, it was kind of confusing and didn't actually make sense because the Bible never claims to be like the oldest book out there. One thing that probably would argue is that it's probably a response to a lot of ideas out there at the time. There's a lot of pagan uh, ideas, and I believe like when God spoke to Moses, uh, which is who we believe wrote the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, so to speak, of the Old Testament, that it was God communicating to Moses. And a lot of people even throw up flack about that. It was like, well, in the Genesis account, you know, Moses wasn't there with God. Like, yeah, but God was there, and God could communicate to Moses how, you know, creation happened. Um. But so that's just kind of like as a side note, the Bible never claims to be the oldest book out there. Um, you can maybe argue that it's a response to the paganism of its day. Um, I have heard that the Genesis account is like a, kind of like God's polemic against some of the ideas that were floating around in the time of uh, uh, Old Testament, in the time of um, specifically Moses. Um, uh, but kind of like, just kind of give a little bit of background about the Old Testament before we dive into one of the ob objections that I've dealt with before. Originally, uh, the people, the Hebrew people, had a collection of uh, family traditions, stories. Tales of Abraham, the tales of Isaac, and the tales of Jacob. And the custom of circumcision. Until the, new, I mean, until the Old Testament began, like with Moses and all that, those were really the only information that the Jewish people had about God. So there was a lot of chance for misconception there. There's a lot of chance for just there wasn't a lot of information there. So it was, you know, there's a lot more question, so to speak. And and so when the Old Testament began, when Moses sat down with God and began to go through the events of uh, the first five books of the Bible, so to speak. It was, it was basically working off of the idea that these people had no like cultural identity other than the fact that God chose them you know, 
in the time of Abraham. I'm not even sure exactly what that meant. Um, there's a lot of questions I'm sure about that. And one of the big things when Moses first talks to God and is like, "Who, who are you? Who do you? Who do?" When people ask, "Who I'm coming in the name of? What's the? What's your name?" So God is like, "I am who I am. I am Yahweh." Um, and so that was like record breaking for the Israelites because before that they didn't even they they refer to the God that they worshipped as the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and Jacob because that was the interaction that they had with God because post um, Joshua, post that taking place where Joshua. Was, Brother sold him into slavery, and he ended up going into Egypt. All those events around that. After that, there was basically like 400 years of silence between them and God, and it was the opportunity for a lot of, I guess you could say, I won't say pagan influence, but I guess in a way, yeah, pagan influence creep in, and a lot of information other than the traditional stories, they didn't have any information. So one thing that I like to always put out there with the Old Testament specifically is that um, this is really the people of Israel's coming to understand who they are, coming to understand who God is at a deeper level. Not that they had a full revelation of God was, they had a, a more clear understanding of what God was. Um, and also giving them a cultural identity because until that point, other than the, like I said, other than the, the, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the, the custom of circumcision, Jewish people didn't really have anything else really to go. Um, and if you look at you know the passover all those events take place in like like in the bible like obviously they're in the bible but these historical events happened because those historical events happened they then influenced the culture creating a culture out of that those events they celebrate the passover because god literally passed over the death angel literally passed over them because they were the chosen people and they trusted God at his word and they put the blood over their doorpost. So, I mean, that celebration is a response of what God had done. So moving forward, we have a lot of different laws, regulations, things like that, that are specifically for the Jewish people. Um, they're not for everybody, therefore the Jewish community. It was, a given, again, a giving them a sense of identity, a giving them a culture and all those things they didn't have before. Because before that, before the um, exodus, so to speak, they, they were slaves. So they come out of slavery, have, other than the custom of circumcision, isn't a fun process that everybody's excited about signing up for. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of anything for them to celebrate, so to speak. And so you see in the opening pages of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and all those things, God speaking to Israel, God speaking to Moses, giving commands, giving judgment out various topics. And, and, and in that way, defining what this people group would be also influence that people group would have on the country places around them. Um, because at that time, concepts of all and other various pagan deities at the time, I mean, you had Amun-Ra and all the other Egyptian gods out there, Greek gods out there. So there was a lot of misconception. So when God spoke to Moses, and, he, and then Moses spoke to the people of Israel. You actually have God saying, this is who I am. This is what I do. 
faithful, I'm just, except, you know, like go through these lists of things that, you know, God says that he is. Then as Moses wrote it down, as Moses recorded, as Joshua recorded, and various other assistants of that time recorded, it helped develop this uh, pool of documents, which is Old Testament. I'm specifically talking about the first five books of the Bible to institute another name. Um, in that, you know, we like I said, we had various laws and things of that nature which people did. And inside those things also are what's called moral laws. Moral laws are kind of like what we would think of as laws that apply to everybody. So you have Jewish custom laws that apply to the Jewish people. Then you also have Moral laws, such as do not murder. That is a law, that is a moral law that transcends every single ethnic group out there that, you know, murder is wrong, right? But, you know, a uh, man shaving, not shaving his beard, shaving his tassels, whatever you want to call it, that would be a cultural, cultural law them at that time and so forth that makes so there's two distinguishing distinguishes here distinguishing traits and um i think it's important to make those delineations because part of this is like you know have some christian groups that say hey we need to follow the old testament dietary laws and then you have some christians that say no we don't need to follow dietary it's like, okay, well, who's right? Um, and, and so, you know, and, and based upon how you answer that question, that I go, might, might uh, hear you in a different denomination. I believe there's certain denominations that, you know, practice um, certain dietary laws of the Old Testament, but that's not necessarily meant for us to follow. And at, at a later time, we'll talk about that. Um, one oral argument I've heard though, has to do with the issue of in in the book of Leviticus you have um, several instances of where God's like do this, don't do this, don't do this. This is what you should. Do. Um, and in that section, Leviticus it talks about uh, there's. Three different examples given about um, very touchy topic. It's about rape. And I say that because a lot of times, like if you argue Christian, you argue for Bible being the Word of God. You know, and someone throws up this passage about like um, where a woman is quote unquote raped, and she has to marry. The person who raped her. Um, that is an that is a uh, opposition that I've heard. Like someone tried to say, "Hey, look, this is what the Bible teaches," you know, and I don't feel that that's right. Um, and here's the reality: that's not right, but that's also a misunderstanding of what the text is saying. Um, so, in that section, it deals with this very sensitive topic of rape. Three different instances that are given. Uh, the first instance of rape, and this is actual true. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I know I'm, I'm being just kind of plowing through, but this is a very sensitive topic, and it's, it's a very serious topic. I, 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 I get that, but I'm just trying to make illustrate this point. So there's a woman out in the middle of the field, and she cries out for help, and nobody's there. Nobody helps her, and you know, God's like, and, 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 and excuse me, and uh, the text says, you know, what she'll, she'll get her justice. A man who you know, did this to her will be caught, will be punished, will be executed. He will not be harmed. Uh, then in that next passage of Scripture, it talks about, like kind of like how I mentioned, it talks about a woman and man getting together outside of marriage, basically having sex, and um, 
then the you know they everyone finds out about it so to speak and then the the father of the the daughter or the bride or whatever like hey you need to pay the dowry so this is an instance of what's called statutory rape um you know we have that kind of law idea even in our society today um depending on what state you're in you know the legal age of marriage is anywhere from 18 to 16 depending on what state you're in and if someone who's of the age of 18 gets with someone who is of the age of 16 you know the uh, parents of that uh, girl can file charges against the 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 uh, perpetrator, the the guy, um, and and I think this uh, argument that poses in this particular passage where it talks about rape, as lying as that is, sensitive as that is, I believe that is the accurate understanding of what's going on here. Not a woman who's getting raped out in the middle of nowhere, and then okay, well. He has to marry the guy that raped her. So it's two people who are not betrothed. Betrothing in that time period was a very big, very important thing. Still is in the middle. And if they went outside the um, ideas of marriage and betrothal at that time, they consummated their relationship, and then it gets discovered, and and um, there's the consequences of it. and the the man pays the dowry to the father and they're married because that was what they wanted anyways, exercising their uh, uh, relationship before they should have. And then the third example of rape is where a woman and a man are caught in the act of uh, adultery. In other words, they're two willing participants and they um, get caught and in order to try to get off a lot a light sentence, which was at that time in Jewish society was death was a death sentence. Both people involved. And so she's basically came up and oh I've been discovered. Well, I'm gonna lie and say I was raped when in fact I was a willing participant. Try to mitigate the consequences of her action. Been up to the husband to either believe her or not believe her. So, in that kind of like that opposition, that air of opposition, you see, although it's still a sensitive topic, but at the same time, if you actually approach the text properly, you, you follow these factors, these different goals here in this text, you see that it's actually not talking about a woman who is, you know, Forced against her will to marry this guy. No, she was a willing participant in this. She was wanting to be in this relationship with this guy, and this guy was wanting to be in a relationship with her. He just didn't go about it the right legal way. And then the uh, then the father-in-law comes and says, "Okay, I'm going to um, allow this betrothal to take place, and you'll pay me the dowry." All those things. So that's actually what that's talking about. That makes. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, one thing I would kind of add, uh, not to the last thing Zach was talking about, going into that specific example, but kind of pull us back a little bit to look at the Old Testament in general. Um, kind of going along the same flow as Zach, but so just adding you know extra thoughts, extra layers to what was said before was. One thing that can really trip people up, and some of you out there listening might already know this. Uh, any of you listening, this might be the very first time you encounter this idea. It might floor you. And the the, the fact is, when people find this out, it floors many. A lot of uh, unbelieving college professors love to, to floor young people with realization if they've grown up in a Christian home. But one of the things that's very shocking about that uh, to learn about the Old Testament grew up in church or grew up with a familiarity with it, uh, to find out that many of the facets of the Old Testament, uh, the history of Israel, their worship, their literature that's in places like the Psalms or the Proverbs, much of that stuff is actually not unique. What I mean by that is the layout of the temple is actually very commonplace for pagan culture. 
the poetry that's in the Old Testament was actually very commonplace for descriptions of uh, Baal, one of the pagan gods Zach mentioned. A lot of believers, or a lot of people who are seeking, they actually get very tripped up and confused about that. Well, they assume, well, okay, if this literature isn't unique, if this architecture around the temple and the tabernacle isn't unique, then that must be evidence that Israel was just one more culture in a long line of history. In other words, they think, well, maybe uh, some of the um, non-believing explanation of Israel's history is true. Maybe they hijacked pagan cultures, took out all the, the polytheism, and simply created Judaism out of their pagan forefathers. In other words, maybe Yahweh is literally just one step ahead from a Baal or an Astroth. It's just more simple to worship one god instead of many. And so one thing that's got to be understood for people who might be confused about that idea, because if you didn't hear it from me, you would pro if you searched long enough, you would find that out in your own reading and research anyway. But one thing that's very important to get pegged down is, you know, most of these cultures, they don't do this. And people who built these ta this, this tabernacle, people who built this temple, as they did it, they themselves were fully aware that this was common. I mean, this generation that traveled with Moses, they knew full well that the, the cultures around them was using this very same format. People who wrote the poetry of Psalms, in order for it to reflect uh, the poetry of Baal so well, they themselves had to have been exposed to it. There's no way they would have quoted it by coincidence. Some people might say that they were inspired of God, but it's not part of doctrine of inspiration to say that they were just voted God like robots. It's not what the doctrine of inspiration is saying. So what we, what that is trying to convey is the idea of, for many different reasons, God was using a format that they would understand in their own mind. It makes it very clear, even though I'm making a tabernacle, even though we're making a temple, there, this is not a God who can be stored inside of buildings. And yet, because, one, because the people understood the concept of a temple. You go to a temple and you bow down to Baal. Well, let's replace that, separate ourselves from it, by going into a temple and bowing down to the one true God instead. So that's not evidence that the God of the Bible is a fiction. That is just evidence that God is willing to accommodate cultural thinking in order to convey the truth, because the truth is that malleable, that, that, uh, that able to adapt to different cultures as long as the truth continues to be communicated. As far as the poetry goes, it's people who already knew and were well acquainted with the poetry of Baal. Uh, it says in the Psalms that, you know, Yahweh rides on the clouds, lightning comes forth in might. Pagan literature says the same thing almost word for word about Baal. So what they were led to do by the Spirit was to communicate uh, the glory of Yahweh by the same way. Same wording that Baal was being glorified and honored, they wanted to use that and literally they, they wanted to intentionally hijack the literature to bring glory to the correct God. And so they believed in the God before they wrote the literature and it's not that they had no creativity. I mean, they. I mean, anybody who studied studied literature, they they can tell you that the Bible is the most uh, one of the biggest soaring piece uh, masterpieces throughout time. But what they did was instead of feeling like they had no creativity, they had to hijack another culture's ideas. What they did was they intentionally did that as a slap in the face to Baal. In other words, they're saying that all these great lofty things that the culture is saying about Baal, it is not true of him, it is true of this one true God. And of course, it takes that poetry and goes a step further. They're saying that you know, not only can we say these creative poet, poetic things about the true God, but the, the culture of Israel went a step further in saying that you know, Baal has his limits. Yahweh does not. Baal is bound by time like the rest of us. His story goes one step at a time. But the Old Testament is hinting all the way throughout that Yahweh is God over Baal. He is actually outside time. He knows how the story ends as he watches the story begin. 
And so while Baal goes forth and fights his battles, Yahweh goes forth and fights a battle that, from his perspective, he already fought and he already won. He's just telling this from our perspective so that we can read it, grasp it one step at a time, the way a human mind understands. So if anybody comes across anyone trying to that the Old Testament is a falsehood or some kind of forgery because it reflects pagan literature so very much, um, if you come across that, don't let it trip you up because there were specific reasons that the authors of the Old Testament chose to write that way. There are specific reasons that they chose to let what was being said about Baal be said almost word for word about Yahweh so that the hearts of these people would be turned to the one true God. Because you've got to remember that throughout their almost their entire history, they were swayed by these pagan gods. They were constantly bowing down to these pagan gods, and some of them probably, just using my imagination, they probably smuggled this literature into Israel. They probably propagated it, read it. Um, even if it was done in secret, and over time, it was less and less secret as it got less and less scandalous. But the people who were led to write, they were the ones whose hearts were broken by the paganism around them. So they actually turned it on its head, and so that the Psalms, some of them, end up being a direct appeal to the people to use that kind of outlet for the correct worship rather than wicked worship. And so the whole thing turns into a, a whole different situation if you're willing to look at that from a different angle. It's kind of like if you imagine, you know, someone taking the phrase, Michael Jordan's the greatest, you know, taking that expression that was used and Jesus is the greatest. It's kind, of, it's kind of like that, if that makes sense. It's like you're taking something that everybody's from, uh, saying, that everyone's familiar with, and you're saying, not this, but God, but Yahweh. Not Baal, but Yahweh. You guys are familiar with this concept that Baal did this. Well, I'll tell you what. Baal didn't do it. Yahweh did. I like what Robert's trying to yeah thank you zach i was kind of afraid i wasn't i was i'm afraid that kind of got away with all uh, the academics but you're you're good i i <laughs> you're good man so <clears throat> let me ask you this going back to uh kind of what zach was saying as far as there's these concepts in the old testament that kind of just taken by itself seems abhorrent to some people like you know if if um if a woman was raped you know what was her rights like if if someone you know were to get divorced or wanted to get divorced things like that um it seemed uh, and you you hear a lot of people saying that some of these things that are in the old testament are pretty barbaric um, especially when you look at all the ritual sacrifices that um, they had to do in the old testament especially you know slaughtering uh the firstborn lamb to atone for sin um all these uh, rules and rituals for sacrifice and kind of spiritual cleansing um i think people need to realize too like this was this was before and and please correct me if i say something wrong here um or help me um kind of interpret this but this was before christ so a lot of this stuff were laws and rules that were designed to help keep these people safe um and a lot of the ritual sacrifices and and the and the spiritual cleansing through sacrifice was because Jesus didn't exist yet, that was the only method at the time for really atoning for those sins. And so it's not that Christianity is barbaric. I mean, this is literally pre-Christianity. Um, and it was because of Christ that a lot of these practices no longer have to exist. Is that is that making sense? Like, is that kind of... Uh, yeah, it makes sense to me because... Uh, yeah, I mean, you talked about the fact that all these practices are pre-Christian. 
Um, the Old Testament, and I, maybe I said this or something similar on an earlier episode, one of us, but you know, if someone only went with the Old Testament, you basically have a story that builds up to this great crescendo, but there's no climax. It just stops. It's like a, a novel that just stops mid-sentence, and it doesn't really finish its story. So what it does is it, I mean, it basically amplifies the fact that we live in a lost world. It amplifies the fact that we are in a broken world. It's not the Disney version of anything. Um, I've actually heard stories, and I'm not talking about stories I've heard out there. I mean stories within my own church. Um, and I was serving at one. We decided to do one of those Bible reading plans in a year. And so the whole church got on board. Parents decided that they would sit down with their kids and read the Bible because what more wholesome thing is there than the Bible? But there's some, there's some stuff in there that's very PG-13. Very, if not R. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Very. And I mean, so I mean, starting from chronologically, I'm assuming I'm assuming everyone out there listening and can actually comprehend most of what they are adults. So I won't sugarcoat this, but. I mean, chronologically, you're reading through Genesis, talking about creation and then the fall. Right after the fall, you've got a brother murdering another, but um, a man about to have sex with his sister-in-law, he literally decides to abort mission because he doesn't want to have a child through her. You have a woman dressing up as a prostitute to seduce her own brother for political reasons. The culture of the time was very, very, you know, blood contract. Um, without going into all those details. And we had parents reading this with their children, not ready for it. And um, just FYI out there, uh, I'm an associate pastor, so the senior pastor was approached, and these parents were saying, oh my, shocking, horrible things that are in the Bible. He goes, you know what that tells me? Never read it to know it's there. <laughs> You've been members here for years, and just now cracking Genesis open above beyond eden noah uh, it's just it's under i mean speaking of noah i mean we have a story where god literally wipes out everybody except eight people and we'll teach it to our sunday school children like it's you know a little cartoon character from dora the explorer up on the high seas with a little smiley face and all her, all his cute little animals yeah and the reality of it was is as soon as like one of the first things he did whenever he got out of the ark was he got drunk know why he got drunk because he can look out into the valleys and he can see nothing but corpses because people were dead everyone that he knew outside of his immediate family was dead yeah this is not a happy story this is nothing uh, the on, the only bray of light in the story of noah if we can go down that rabbit trail for another simply the fact that even though god judges there is hope and that's when the new testament cracks its way into the old but, uh, you know, that, that, that in details for another episode. For now, we focus on the Old Testament. And just the fact that there's so much shocking, torrent stuff, not because it's being celebrated, not because you know, they want, the, the authors wanted to shock you into reading it more and more, um, but just the fact that if something occurred and it was not pretty, they didn't shy away from just reporting exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, a great example of it, you know, it's like, if you think of, you think of King David, oh, King David, he's a guy after God's own heart, and you're like, and if you, if you only knew that, you're like, oh, yeah, but the dude, uh, not, he slept with another man's wife, and then he tried to get, uh, and then she got pregnant, and then he tried to cover it up, and then... Yeah, by having Uriah come home from the front line is like go home, sleep with your wife because child, and you don't need to know that she's with. And you know, Uriah's like, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. I my brothers are out in the field. How could I go to my wife while they're out in the field? Then David's like, all right, well, fine then. Go back to the front line. All right, general, have him killed. I mean, mm. that's King David. I mean, mm. you know, and that's one thing that. So, like, when you talk about the Bible, it's like everybody but God is a villain. I think that's one thing that you, whenever you read the Old Testament, whenever you read uh, these uh, things, you know, all these people, especially, like, if you have a Sunday school, like, you know, children's Sunday school understanding of the Bible, I mean, 
these people were not good people. I mean, yes, they had, yes, they believed God, and because they believed God, God counted that as righteousness. But they did some wicked stuff. I mean, Abraham lied about who Sarah was to the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh almost, you know, he married her and almost did some bad stuff. And, and God's like, no, you will not do that to my servant's wife, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, you have all kinds of instances of where all these men of faith were completely and totally human. If this book was a fabrication you know, by the Israelites or whatever, they wouldn't have this stuff in. You really think they'd want King David to, to have all this junk put out in front of everybody? No, they'd want to keep it hidden. And so, again, that just adds to the credibility of the fact that this thing is a legit thing. Yeah, this these portions of though they are hard to take in sometimes because they can be so graphic, but at the same time, it's it's reporting real history. And this isn't saying that God condones these things necessarily, because there's a lot of stuff that happens that the people of Israel do, and God's like, you know, they sacrifice kids, and God's like, what are you doing? Because you're doing this, I'm going to bring judgment upon you because you're sacrificing your own kids. And I told you, I never told you to do anything like that. You know? That's one thing about the Old Testament. Like, you see, God, it, you know, does he get mad with the Canaanites? Yes, he does. But you know what? He also gets mad at his own people. You know? He doesn't punish the Canaanites and then give, you know, Think at the the Israelites when they go off and they do the same. So he punishes both. Kind of like you have children out there, say your parent. One child does something bad. Well, you don't punish the other children if they've not done something bad. But whenever they do the exact same thing as the child that gets punished, punish those children as well because they're not showing favoritism. So when God punishes the Canaanites, he punishes the Canaanites. When Israel does some of the same exact stuff, you know what? He punishes them because he's good and he's a just God. Does oh yeah, and it's not just that. Um, one one interpretation I've run across is all these quote unquote heroes of the Old Testament. They were written down in a culture that wouldn't consider that that um, behavior so very shocking, but our modern culture is judging it shocking. Uh, the, the the very scriptures that in one one page they'll tell you everything David did, in another page they'll literally condemn everything about that story. So just imagine having your deepest, darkest, most shameful act—the one thing you give almost anything to cover up for the rest of your life. Imagine it not only being written down and shared and published in a raunchy expose, but for that expose to become the masterful bestseller. In world history, and everyone who remembers your name and does any research on who you were will always inevitably wind right back to that painful thing mm -hmm. that you would give anything to cover up. And so, mm -hmm. this is, yeah, this is, these are scriptures that condemn the very heroes that Jewish people would have revered most for their hearts and their courage, the way God used them. And then it turns around and says, but if you truly want to obey the God of the Bible, do not be like them. It just, it, it, when you really understand that, when you really come to it, knowing, like Zach said, the only hero is Jesus himself, God, the creator of everything. He created a universe full of villains. It just changes the way you read everything. And so um, one incident in particular that I was kind of assigned for this <laughs> oh snap! Uh, Zach covered, um, you know, the supposed raping of the young girl, and how the whole dynamic of that changes when you understand their culture. Um, you know, just a quick side note about that. I mean, when in doubt about some of the things that are shocking, just twist the the the, the little lens through which you're looking at that. Um, you know, those little—I uh, believe they're called kaleidoscopes. You can twist it, and they change colors. If you can just understand that culture, the way they thought, and God, knowing that he has to accommodate the way they think, he can't just say, you will never have a slave again, 
will never do this again. Because, tell me, did they really obey any of it, yes or no? Oh, no. He could have said it till his uh, metaphorical face was blue up in heaven, but people would still have disobeyed. That's the whole point of the message. And, I mean, there's um, a sto- uh, There's an old black-and-white episode of a British sci-fi show called Doctor Who. It re- I mean, phenomenally illustrates this whole thing. Copyright. And copyright, um, <laughs> yes, I'll say it again. Doctor <laughs> Who, come sue me. But uh, Doctor, no, no, seriously, don't we don't have money? <laughs> yeah, so I'll just give you my shoe. And I'm not going down a rabbit hole. I'm using this to one to bridge from his to my incident, and so I'll actually use it to go into my incident. So I'm not just tangent. But this episode is very early uh, for fans out there uh, who know what I'm talking about. It was during the days of the first Doctor. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. It was back in the '60s. And there's an episode. He's a time traveler, and they land in the days of the ancient Aztec. One of the people with him is a school teacher. She knows all about the Aztecs. She's a history teacher, and she's excited because they, one thing leads to another. The Aztecs see her technology, and they believe that she is a goddess. And so she's excited, and she uh, she basically gives this monologue of, well, if the Aztecs believe this about me, you know, what I say go, goes, I can be the one to condemn their human sacrifice because they were known to slaughter human beings to try to bring good weather, bring blessing upon their people. Somebody would be selected and slaughtered for the sake of many. And she said, well, if they believe I'm a goddess, I can get rid of this barbaric activity and history would be different. And the main character, the actual time traveler, he's the one who understands how time works. He's done it for a long time. He explains to this woman, it's not that easy. You were going to try to push against a tidal wave to try to change the way these think. They are set. They are done. Got to accommodate. You have got to sit back and allow this because due to the whole butterfly effect of trying to change something like this could be more drastic and more damage than you just leaving it alone. She doesn't listen to him. She, try, she publicly condemns their sacrifices. She says, I, the mighty goddess, I condemn what you've been doing. She's trying to sway their thinking. You will never sacrifice another human being. This is not what I want. And they, the people, the Aztecs, they panic. They assume that this must be an, apost- an imposter because what goddess would ever uh, try to out against sacrifice something so sacred to them they're, they're stuck in their own thinking and their own culture and they just turn and try to kill her and they run for their lives and that's one of the ways they leave that time period and so the kind of the whole moral of the story was you know don't think that you can change everything and it was just this concept of you know if you could go back would you really be able to change that much so this is just a, an illustration in fiction of you know the situation that the Almighty Holy God trying to accommodate the way a people a whole generation scores of thought, and so he's having to put these laws in place. Yes, you will have a king. Yes, you will have servants. Yes, you will do this and this. Not, be, not necessarily because I approve of all of it, because I know that they are going to be there. God is the ultimate realist. Nobody understands sin better than he does. And so you've got this. Realist God approaching my next subject, and so that's when I'm fine. When I'm finally getting to this one, this will, unless Zach has any closing thoughts with this, this might be one of the last things we pursue for this episode. Uh, we're winding down to the last few minutes, but the uh, the slaughter of the Canaanites is one of the most <laughs> heatedly debated, and that's why I gave it. <laughs> I mean, trying to ignore it is. It's like trying to stop a speeding car with a fly swatter. You're not going to do it. You've got to approach it. You've got to talk about it. Yeah, because I guarantee you, if you're out there and you're a Christian, you say, especially like in, in the university circles, wherever you say, hey, I'm a Christian, they are going to bring this up. They I are. guarantee you. And many out there, you, you yourselves are probably struggling with it. You may have had it come up to your face. You may have been the person throwing it in someone's face. Yeah. 
you may have been angst if you've actually listened to this show long enough to get to this episode if you didn't skip to it and i mean you may have been angsty about it all along sitting there filtering through our our many hours of discussion wondering when we will get to this and so very brief synopsis for those who have no idea what i'm talking about and i doubt you won't um, almost everyone already will but in book of joshua is the next generation after Moses. Moses leads the people out of Egypt to go into the land that God has promised them. Moses dies, passes it on to Joshua of noon, and it is Joshua's job to be the next Moses, immediately overwhelmed. And one of the first things God does in that book is show up to him and tells him, do not be discouraged, do not be afraid, for God is with you. And we use those verses as great encouragement when our kid is about to play a football game almost every christian movie when it gets to the the moral emphasis part of the movie they will quote these verses or something similar and what we try to ignore and what nobody who reads the bible actually reads it and let us ignore is these verses are comfort to a man who's about to go in and and help kill and destroy countless cities he don't be afraid as you confront them and kill them Go into war against them for your God is when people read this, they're like, Whoa, this is some barbaric stuff. So if you do not look at this from a certain perspective, it will be impossible ever accept it. So what I'm saying is for those who believe that there is a God, omnipotent, eternal God, watched a world fall, who had no choice but to judge it because it was evil. He sees the evil in Canaan. He has got to do something about it. We ask over and over in Christian circles. It's part of not just Christian philosophy, but just modern human philosophy. Does war ever have value other than just destruction? Is it ever good, morally reasonable to ever go to war? And anybody who fought against the Nazis would tell you there are times when you have got to act or you've got to watch the world fall. And I believe there are many times in World War II, if you study just how well um, the, the side against the Nazis rose up and had very, very lucky breakthroughs, I don't think those things were luck. I, they were providence allowing the world to be sustained past this apocalyptic point in history due to one man's decisions. So, kind of using that principle in the ancient world, is it ever justified to go to war? So, looking at this from the ground up, if you look around yourself from a human perspective, you can get very lost in the jumble of it, the, con the confused violence of it. So, why would God ever condone it? So, we've got to go up a few floors to look down at it from a wider perspective, the perspective of the whole story. You have a fallen world that has got to be redeemed through a dead Messiah. God already knows the plan of Jesus before we ever. He knows what he's going to do. He has got to, according to this plan, he's got to raise up Israel. Why would he waste time, from our perspective, why would he, quote-unquote, waste time raising up Israel if, if he could have just went ahead and sent the Messiah? And the reason is because he, had, he needed a culture in the world that truly understood these basic concepts, their mind, gospel. What I mean by that is he needed a culture in this world that truly understood sin for what it is, truly understood the need for sacrifice for what it is, who truly understood holiness in God and unholiness in us. He needed to lay all these ground pieces so that we would finally grasp exactly who Jesus was and what he did in the full. If there was no Old Testament and Jesus went ahead and came right away, if the Messiah immediately came, then there would have been almost nobody truly grasping what he was there for. You've got to understand all the bad, all the rotten stuff before you flip it over look at all the glory that comes in the gospel. So before all this, you've got to get these people out of Egypt to establish a nation 
you have promised them this particular land, there were many reasons from God's perspective why that land. Many of the things we'll never know until we ask him about it in heaven someday. There are many things that he's hidden from us, things that only he would know in the whole cause and effect of history. But one of the reasons is it's a pivotal point to spread his message throughout the other nations. If you go in any direction from Israel, it will lead into Asian countries. It will lead into the African countries. So it's very, very strategic for one. But in order to get it, We've got to route out these people that have been doing much worse things than people are willing. People uh, much worse things people are willing to condemn others. For. That makes sense. People have condemned others for doing less than the Canaanite. So these are cultures that were debasing women, and this. And I'm talking about 21st century America. This is a culture that wants to uplift women, uh, consider their human dignity, uh, you know, push them farther than they've ever been pushed so that their God-given dignity is restored. This was a culture in ancient Canaanites, uh, talking about multiple cultures. The ancient Canaanites was a culture that based women, based women, uh, debauched small children, and I mean sexually and in the fires. They would sacrifice children to their gods, literally take infants and put them into the fire. Which is a terrifying thought. I mean, like, Alan is not yet two, and the thought of... To even think that I'm going to take my child and put it in this furnace, listen to his cries, I mean, that would be heart horrifying. I couldn't even imagine doing something like that. And they did it, and the Canaanites did it. They did. They did it. They, you know, they, they, they were the ones who genuinely raped women, destroyed their lives because they were property. They were like cattle. Um, God had given them multiple decades. This is usually ignored. Multiple decades to change who they were, to change their ways, and by their own free will, they were just going their own way. They had proved through their actions, and of course, God Himself knew by his own divine knowledge that they never would. So it's got to be stopped in order to make to allow history to be redeemed. I mean, just imagine how much more warped, based, and wicked history would have been from that point on if these Canaanites had been allowed to continue. Now, of course, that's true of almost every culture, but that was one culture that was right in the way of God's plan that was not ever going to change its ways. It was always going to be just a cesspool of destruction and wickedness. So from God's perspective, even though he loved, the, he loved them, he knew that he had to pull out the weeds in order to let the true, plant, uh, true plants grow. A culture that would be, in theory, a culture that would be People who would restore the idea that children are made in God's image, that they have value. A culture that upheld the idea that women are meant to be loved and revered and listened to and respected and learn and to grow. A culture that was meant to be the, the beacon of hope for all these other nations who were just like the Canaanites all around them. But you've got to get them out so that Israel can, one, survive. If they had tried to... Uh, coexist with the Canaanites and try to become Israel in full, you know, have a temple, have a city, have a nation, have tribes, they would have been destroyed by the Canaanites themselves. They would have been routed out. There would have been no Old Testament. There would have been no message. If the Messiah had come, we would have missed him because there were no prophecies. And literally every, from this perspective, from the Bible stories perspective, almost everyone, if not literally everyone, except maybe Abraham and Moses would go to heaven. That's what was at stake. So you have God uh, doing what he, that it's not his own ideal, it's not what he wanted, but it's the human beings choosing their own way and having to accommodate those actions in order to get his fuller plan in place. So you have Joshua moving in, taking out cities, it's absolutely necessary in light of the bigger story. Now, one of the more shocking things that have occurred in the text, God is telling them to weed out not only the soldiers, 
and you would expect them to weed out just the soldiers and spare women and the children, but it says to take out everybody, women, children. And, I mean, this is a horrible thing to think about. And, of course, horrible for us to read. It was it, it was infinitely more horrible for God to fathom and think about him being holy, had to not only look upon it, strategically plan it out this way and then against everything he wished for the human race he has to command this to happen this particular time in history so that everything else can follow and if you look at it from you know the perspective of history if you had survivors children living in that certain city and they saw israelites coming in wiping out their daddies their uncles uh, their grandpas, if they were strong enough to fight, they would have grown up to become a generation just to stand up and do everything that the first Canaanites would have done. So you have you would have gotten through threat number one. Twenty years down the road, thirty years down the road, you'd have to contend with uh, basically threat number two. Subsequent every gen- every generation, it's like it's kind of like if you imagine. Like, as terrible as it is, it's like, you kill them all now, and in the long term, you have peace. Whereas, if you show mercy to them, then you will perpetually have war. And the reality of it is, is and this is an important point, and I think Robert's going there, and and the the, the reality of it is the Israelites didn't, Fulfill what they were called to do. Exactly. Thank you. You're a mind reader. That was my next breath. The book of Joshua ends with the warning. It's literally a warning to the Jews that are reading this book. It says that generation, once again, like every generation throughout all scripture, failed, underlined, failed, failed, failed to do exactly as God commanded. But it doesn't end just with that. It goes into detail. It lists the people's in Canaanite, uh, in Canaan, the Canaanite peoples that Joshua and his generation were meant to rout, but they failed to do it due to sin or to greed or to laziness because they got comfortable with the, the piece of the pie that they already had. Once they got to a certain point, they just let it be. And so it's saying that it, it says, don't get us wrong, the generation of Joshua continued to be faithful to their God. They worshipped with great zeal and love. But this failure was like a wart on their face. And the reason that's such a failure and the reason this is listed in particular is so that you'll keep reading. Because the scriptures don't end with the book of Joshua. The story continues. And so almost every single time, Israel has a problem. They go to war against somebody harassing them, oppressing them, killing their people. They're trying to live in peace, but these other people won't stop coming in and harassing them unprovoked. Guess who it is? People directly descended from that list. People who were in there that could have been routed, and the Old Testament could have been about ten times more boring because there'd be less war and killing and destruction and people losing their lives for no reason simply because they chose not to route out those particular Kansas peoples that would do violence unprovoked. And guess what conflict that is still, even to this day, dealing with? Palestinian and the Jewish people? It goes on. You know, that, that conflict is a direct result of this thing. And again, you know, we're, we're, we're saying this stuff, and I mean, I'm not trying, and I, I, know, I, I know Robert's heart. I know that neither one of us are like trying to like, oh hey, you know, um, this was good or anything like that. But the reality of it is, is God is just, and when it comes to a point, just like with America, there comes a point when a line is crossed. God's like, all right, judgment. But we talk about Jesus being out of peace, but he was actually. He spoke about, and when it talks about whenever when Jesus talks about the coming of the kingdom of God, you know what has to happen before that comes? The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, straight up, God's wrath poured out on the entire 
planet. Um, again, we're not not trying to devalue humanity. We're not trying to devalue the Canaanites. We're trying to say that we're equal with the Canaanites. You know, God just had a specific purpose for the Israelites being in that place at that time in order to do that, to do that correctly and fully. That was the stipulation. And it was like a twofold. First, it was given the Israelites what they what he promised them would have, which was the promised land. That's called the promised land. And then it was also bringing judgment upon a people group that, you know, if you look at the book of Leviticus, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. Keep going with it, do not do this, and so on and so on. Reason is, is like, because the nation that you're driving out before you is guilty of these. And again, like I was saying earlier, you know, if God punished the Israel, I mean, excuse me, if God punished the Canaanites, then he winked at Israel's sin, and Israel did those things, and that would make him bad. It wouldn't make him just. It wouldn't make him holy. It wouldn't make him righteous. The reality of it is, when Israel went too far, what did he do? He brought judgment upon them. He he is always he always tries to show mercy, grace, but at the same time, just like the time of Noah, just like with the Canaanites, just like with Sodom and Gomorrah, just like in the end with the Book of Revelation, there comes a point. For God's mercy ends. That aligns with his plan to bring about judgment, does it? Because, and to kind of summarize everything Zach has said just now, I mean, all these things, these horrible events of judgment, no Christian would agree that these are necessarily good things, but they're holy necessity. Holy necessity. It's like the kid who has to who has to clean up his room. It's the person who has to do his taxes, even though it's grueling. These are things that you just. And of course, I'm. I would never jump from taxes straight to murder. But <laughs> <laughs> there's a very light illustration of things that have got to be done in order for something to be accomplished, which is an absolute necessity. And so, um, in my mind, perfect way to land the plane with this, um, if Zach or Brian have anything to add. I won't consider it being a one-up situation. I won't. But um, while I have the floor, the best possible way to end this podcast without drawing up into other topics, because I mentioned the New Testament. I said that was for another episode, and it is. But one thought that I at least want to leave you with, even if this episode continues with these two a little bit longer, the reason, and I want us all to step back and think about the reason a 21st century English speaking first world reader would look at the scriptures, the Old Testament in particular, find it shocking and vile and barbaric and wicked and wrong is one because the whole Bible, if you take both testaments into account, if the story does not end there and continues on to Jesus and beyond, a whole book in tandem, the whole thing is a picture. It's agreeing with us. And the reason we find it barbaric is because we have been raised in the West on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we believe he's the very God who inspired those words. Jesus is the one who said, let the little children come to me. Jesus is the one who allowed women to come and learn from him, which in that culture was totally unheard of. He's the one who started the great, uh, movement slowly but surely allowing culture unravel its opinion about servanthood, slavery. Because every genuine count uh, for freedom, every genuine fight for freedom for people who've been oppressed have been doing it under biblical principles. And by biblical, I mean by, by Bible, I mean two testaments rather than one. Two testaments make one story about one God dealing with the world different times in different ways, let that one story come out. And so when you read it, 
and you're offended and you're angered and God for that because the God over it was just as angry or angry than any of us could be but he knew what was absolutely necessary it's the teachings of Christ this one homeless man nothing going for him changed history to such a point that two millennia after his death and of course we believe he came back but strictly from a historical perspective for those out there who aren't convinced yet just think about it two millennia after him leaving this world he's impacted it to such a point they would read scriptures that rebuke everything he died to rebuke they would be just as offended he was looking at the world that god looked at and knowing this world this world of rape torture where they would gang rape a little girl, chop her body into 12 pieces, and her to different parts of the land. That's in the book of Judges. This kind literally of world, happened. literally a Bible story from the book of Judges, this kind of world deserves judgment. And people read this and they say, oh man, the religion of this kind of book deserves judgment. They don't realize it, but if they could take a step back and look at it, at it from another angle, they're agreeing with the very God the people worship read the book wow that's uh <laughs> whoo that's a that's a heavy heavy episode i don't know of any better way to wrap it up i mean i i think you kind of nailed it right on the head there with that um what uh what do you think we can um what do you think we can uh, add on to for the next episode? Are we going to keep kind of diving into this Old Testament um, kind of breakdown? Um, we could jump right into prophecy of the Old Testament and leading to Jesus. That's a great bridge for us to go into some New Testament stuff next. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Well, I gotta say, this has been a fantastic episode. I know um, one thing I always do struggle with, and, and Robert, you kind of nailed it, uh, is you have this all-loving, all-just God, and then you have just the absolute slaughter and um, obliteration of the Canaanites and some of this stuff. And it's just, I mean, it reads kind of like a horror story uh, when you really uh, dive into parts of the Old Testament. But uh, uh, kind of getting that understanding as, as to why uh, that was needed, um, I think that's very enlightening. Um, so thank you, Zach. Thank you, Robert. Um, I know I enjoyed this immensely, just kind of getting to sit back and just listen. Um, I know I learned a lot, and I hope listeners learned a lot as well. Um, so uh, with that, everyone, um, yeah, thanks to the both of you. Thanks to our listeners. And uh, we'll be back next time with uh, episode 11. All right. See you then.